You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. And welcome to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. I am your host, Richard Franzi, and this is podcast episode number 1068 in our catalog. Using real-world economic data on growth over the past century can help to identify the economic policies that encourage growth and prosperity within a society. Author Robert Janeski joins me today. We're going to discuss his latest book, Rich Nation, Poor Nation, and the direct link between freedom and prosperity. Robert, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. I've been looking forward to having you on the show for a little bit of time since you first came to my attention and I began to do some background on you. But before we get into the book, tell our audience just a little bit about your professional background, sir. Well, I have a Ph.D. in economics from New York University uh, many, many years ago. (laughs) I think it was about 1972. So I've been an economist since then. worked for a major Midwest bank for many years uh, as their senior vice president and um, left for my own firm, classicalprinciples.com. Uh, was a man- money manager for a number of years. Um, we ran people's money and did quite well at making a lot of people a lot of money. And I uh, still have an economic firm. My uh, website is classicalprinciples.com because I believe that uh, some of the classical economic thought uh, is still tremendously useful for understanding what's going on in our country today, actually what's going on in the world. And um, I'm a proponent of those classical principles from Adam Smith to Milton Friedman to Ronald Reagan right up to the current time. So maybe for our audience, which are business owners and CEOs of middle market companies across North America, maybe you could just at a very high level, as a professionally trained economist, divide the two major economic camps, classical economics and Keynesian, and just give them, if you wouldn't mind, just a few subtle differences between the two schools, major schools of thought. Well, let me say, I think the, the main difference is in terms of the uh, whether or not we're looking at an economy and what it's able to produce as opposed to Uh, the demand side of the equation. Uh, Classical economists such as myself tend to focus on what is it that generates output, generates wealth in a country. And the Keynesian school tends to focus, instead of focusing on output as the cause of prosperity, they tend to focus on demand as the cause of prosperity. So if they see people demanding a lot of goods and services, uh, they think that's really good. And the same with respect to government spending. If they see government increasing government spending, they think, wow, that's really good because then we have more of a demand for goods and services. So the real uh, distinction, I would suggest, the main one between the two schools is do you look upon demand as driving the economy or do you look at the people who are producing the goods and services as driving the economy? And I look at the latter. If a significant part of our GDP is sort of based on the demand side and the consumer demand side in particular, how do you reconcile that? Or am I even giving you a fair question to drive between classical and Keynesian? 
Oh, oh I think all questions are fair. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't distinguish that. No, I, I would say that uh, where uh, while two thirds of all spending in the economy is consumer spending, you have to produce things before you can demand them. <laughs> So I, I think it's a question, and some people think it's chicken and an egg, and I don't. I believe it's the supply that really creates its own demand. If you go back to an economy without money, I mean, people cannot demand something from someone else until they've created something. And so it's a real distinction here between the two schools as to whether it's the creation of output that's more important or is it the spending of the money that's more important. So you're suggesting in earlier in earlier times when there was a barter system, you had to have something from which to barter. Exactly, and that's and that's the essence of economics. That's the basis for economics. The one time where the demand really drives the economy is if the government or the let's say the Federal Reserve uh, changes the money supply dramatically in one direction or another, and then they can fool people. If they're printing a lot more money, they can pull people into de- thinking that there's a great demand for this stuff. And, of course, then you eventually would get inflation because if you're just creating money without the output to support it, you're going to have higher inflation. Or as we had in the financial crisis back in 2008 when an awful lot of people went through a, a great deal of financial trauma because the economy collapsed, at that point, the Federal Reserve made a mistake. They created the first liquidity crisis since the 1930s uh, because they made a mistake in money. They tended to sell a lot of securities, drain money from the system, and we had a liquidity crisis. In a case like that, demand was driving the economy. But in terms of long-term wealth and the creation of wealth, uh, classical economists such as myself believe the supply side of the economy is the main thing that's going to generate wealth uh, or not generate wealth, depending upon uh, the economic conditions. So I have uh, the author of Rich Nation, Poor Nation, and we're going to talk about that after a short commercial break here, ladies and gentlemen. But before we go there, I want to ask you, from your professional experience, how important is it to have an elect? An, an informed electorate in a free society as is in the United States as it relates to basic economic principles? I think it's absolutely critical. Uh, we see country after country where if the electorate is not informed, it really doesn't matter if you have a democracy. Uh, they tend to vote for people who undertake policies that are destructive to wealth. So I, I believe, you know, the, an informed electorate is absolutely critical to creating prosperity, to creating growth. And so that's why I've invited Robert Janetsky to come on the show and talk about his book, Rich Nation, Poor Nation, which, for the loyal listeners of Critical Mass Radio Show, you know we're going to take a very short break. It's just 30 seconds. And when we come back, uh, I'm going to ask you, Robert, to talk about the inspiration for Rich Nation, Poor Nation after this word from me. Richard Franzi is the author of two popular business books for CEOs. His first book, Critical Mass, The Ten Explosive Powers of CEO Peer Groups, was the first book ever written on the secret value of CEO peer groups. His second book, now with newly updated information, 
is Critical Mass, the power of CEO guiding principles. Richard's books contain powerful information to help CEOs running middle market companies gain valuable insight to improve their decision-making skills. Richard's books are available as paperbacks or Kindle versions from Amazon.com. To find them, type Richard Franzi in the search box. Told you we'd be back quickly. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. I am your host, Richard Franzi. All of our shows can be heard anytime on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spreaker.com, several hundred former guest websites whose CEOs have appeared on our show. You know, since we started this show in 2009, we have reached hundreds of thousands of listeners through our live stream, our podcast, our Facebook Live and YouTube videos, and our other social media channels. Simply type in Critical Mass Radio Show in your favorite podcasting software to find our weekly shows with great guests like Robert Janeski, author of Rich Nation, Poor Nation. What was the inspiration for you, sir, to take the time to write this book? Well, first of all, let me say that this is my, my fifth book, so I keep trying to get it right. And the inspiration came originally from Adam Smith, who was the most famous economist in all history, who wrote over 200 years ago. And he had the idea that economic freedom was the real key to prosperity around the world. And he made some fantastic forecasts based on that belief. Uh, One of the most fantastic was that the U.K. would one day be more prosperous than, uh, or or the United States, the colonies, would be more uh, prosperous economically than um, either the colonies in the in South America or than the United Kingdom. And he's absolutely right. It took about a century, but the U.S. became more powerful than the U.K. Uh, the second inspiration was Milton Friedman, uh, the most, the, sorry, I would say the second most famous economist in history. Um, Milton Friedman basically had the same view that Adam Smith had, and that is that economic freedom, characterized by things such as free markets, giving individuals the lowest possible taxes and the least regulation and making sure they had the rule of law so that they could accumulate capital safely, operate in a free environment, and basically experience the greatest amount of output that their creative energies could produce. I mean, these were the ideas that really inspired me. And one of the uh, one of the things that happened is I went back because I had remembered in the early 1980s, Milton Friedman had a TV show. You may have remembered it called uh, "Free to Choose," where he went around the world showing the difference between countries that were free and countries that were not free, and how freedom made such a big difference. And I went back and I watched those, and I was fascinated by the fact that uh, Friedman, after he would make his case, would have a bunch of people who disagreed with him. You know, the progressive view that government is really responsible for growth. And they would go back and forth. And the problem was no one had the evidence uh, because no one had a good measure of economic freedom. And there are some people, for example, when you look at the history of the United States back a century ago, the federal government was only 2% of our economy. You know, today, uh, federal spending is closer to 20%. Uh, if you add the regulatory burdens that the federal government puts, you're up to about 30, 35 percent. If you add state and local government, 
the government now has almost half of all the income that's created in the United States to influence economic policies. And, and we've had a lot of prosperity from the time when government was 2% to the time when government is now so uh, overly grown and intrusive into our economy. So progressives could just as easily argue that, well, look, we've had prosperity. So it must be the government that causes prosperity. And, of course, the, uh, the conservatives, such as myself, classical economists would say, no, I think it was it was government that did the harm when they mm. expanded in the economy. And that was the inspiration. You know, how are we going to resolve this particular issue? So I went back uh, for the United States to the year 1900, and I looked at periods when we had government more involved or less involved. And I had an objective criteria for how we'd establish that. And what I found is that just about all the prosperity that we've had since 1900 occurred in years when the government was cutting taxes or had them very low, cutting government spending, deregulating the economy, uh, and had the rule of law. And, and a matter of fact, the wage increases in the 50 years that I looked at that those policies existed, the middle class wages went up 187%. Those were years of great prosperity. Then I added up all the years when we were doing the opposite, when government spending was increasing dramatically and when we started to regulate markets, have more regulation in the rest of the economy, uh, when we were raising taxes. And during those years, and there were a total of 52 that I found that was very clearly characterized by those policies, there was zero increase in middle-class wages. We went 52 years of the past century without increasing wages. I mean, the prosperity that was characteristic of the American economy came to an abrupt halt. And to me, I, I frankly, I was shocked at that result. Now, I have lived through a number of these periods before, as many of our listeners have, and so you got the sense that you were not doing as well when government became bigger and more intrusive. But the extent to which, the extreme to which we performed so much better during periods when we had more policies of economic freedom, as opposed to the opposite policies, uh, it was really so great that it really struck me as being extraordinary. We're speaking with Robert Janeski, and he is the author of Rich Nation, Poor Nation, and he's talking a bit about the background for the research that forms the foundation for his book. One point those 50 years and 52 years, I assume they were broken up into different periods of time. They weren't contiguous, right? Right. Okay. You know, exactly. Okay. Uh, for example, the periods of prosperity were 1900 to 1913. Um, that was the period when government spending was 2%. Uh, <laughs> there was no income tax. You know, they, all the characteristics of right. what uh, classical economists will want to see. First period that we went in the opposite direction is 1913 to 1920, and that was the Woodrow Wilson years. Then we had the Roaring Twenties, and then we had the period from 29 to 43, huh. where we went back again, and and, and it's back and forth throughout history. And the, the latest period that I've marked is as a period of I call it progressive economic policies, uh, because that's what the people who like these policies call it. Uh, was from 2004 to 
roughly 2015, and which is when my analysis ended. I, I did not carry it through to the past year or two. I see. And, and so you must have normalized your research for things like uh, wars, etc., which you would probably uh, would concede can kind of adjust the data based on those significant external exactly. events, right? From 19, right, from 1940 to actually 1953, uh, the period was so volatile and so dominated by, of course, World War II and then the aftermath of the war and then the Korean War and the aftermath of that. And I felt that even though, you know, wartime could be characterized as progressive because the government took control of just about everything in World War II, price controls, higher taxes, and all the government spending was for war, not nothing uh, that was terribly productive in terms of giving people more goods and services. And then when the war ended, we, we did have prosperity because the taxes came down and everything else. But I felt that these were not periods that were characteristic of normal periods, so I, I just took those off as being separate. Interesting. And I think people who stand on the sidelines or maybe aren't that aware of um, the intensity from which economics can be discussed and debated might be missing a pretty interesting uh, set of exchanges of ideas. Would you agree with that, that there can be? Oh, absolutely, sure. Okay. And um, why, at your core, do you believe given a set of facts that compel you to believe one way, sir, there, there are people who will look at the same set of, set of data and facts and form a very different opinion. How, how is well, that possible in, in something as complex as you economics? Know, I, I, that, you know, I, I, I just love that question, and I'm not sure I have the answer to it. Uh, when, I, when I look at this data, all I ask people to do is, hey, just look at it. You know, if you don't agree with it, Tell me why you don't agree. Tell me which years you would change, what data you would look at uh, to, to kind of pick different periods. And then I go even further than that. Having found what, has ha- what, what, is, what is, I believe, truth for the United States, and that is economic freedom is so powerful, I then go to 40 other countries throughout the world, and I use measures of economic freedom that were developed by the Fraser Institute, a Canadian research group. And those measures have things like, you know, are taxes going up or down? Is the federal government increasing or decreasing its control over the economy? Are there free markets or are markets being controlled? All of those same things that I talk about in the book uh, have been put into a measure of economic freedom. And uh, while, while there are sub-measures and everything else, there's one key measure of economic freedom, which is overly simplified, I, I grant it. And then I looked at countries around the world, 40 of them, and looked at how their prosperity changed when these measures of economic freedom changed. And the, I thought the results were absolutely phenomenal. They were exactly the same as we see in the United States. That is, people around the world are very similar in how they respond to policies of economic freedom. The more freedom you have in countries like Singapore and Hong Kong, the greater the prosperity is there. And the longer it lasts, the greater the prosperity. And when you have a country that has freedom and then they give it up, you can see the dramatic change in terms of their living standards. 
Mm. And for countries that had no freedom and all of a sudden started uh, applying policies of economic freedom, such as Chile, I mean, you can see the charts of how their living standards, usually it takes about four or five years. I mean, this is not instantaneous. Right. You give people economic freedom and you have prosperity. Uh, it takes a long period of time. And you have to build up the confidence for people to invest in the country, build up capital that's going to enable you to create very high living standards. But countries that have done it all over the world, whether it's Latin America or whether it's Africa, where a country called Botswana at the turn of the century became the first African country that wasn't dominated by oil, such as Nigeria, uh, the first African country to have an economic freedom score above the world average. And just this past couple of years, it became the first African country not dominated by oil to have living standards that went above the world average. I mean, the, the evidence is so amazing and I, I get excited about it because when I finished the research I never expected it to come out this way. Uh, I knew I had a bias uh, in favor of classical economic principles, free markets, and so I knew I had to be very careful about my analysis if it was going to be at all useful, that I had to guard against my bias. So I did all the data. It took me two or three years to put this stuff together and I, I was frankly shocked at the extent uh, of, of how impressive the economic freedom was. And I think it's a credit to people like Adam Smith and Milton Friedman, who knew this all along, and all I tried to do is show the extent to which what they said was actually true. This is, this has been fascinating, sir, and I actually have a, a list of questions that my engineer tells me we don't have time to discuss, but Maybe you'll come back on our show at some point in the future because I'd like to ask you your philosophy on tariffs and the impact that that has on an economy. I'd also like to ask you, uh, based on your research or at least your awareness of debt and what that might mean as far as a impact or risk to the economy, are you comfortable talking about those topics? In I, would love to. I would love to. <laughs> do, do you have opinions anytime, about those? Anytime. Do you have a, Do you have opinions about uh, the impact of tariffs and what the debt might mean and deficit might mean to a, a, a I free sure, economy? I, 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 sh- I sure do. Okay. <laughs> Would you be willing to come back and share your views with our audience at some point in the future? Whenever you when wow. you'd like to have I'm not going to pass that up, but before I let you go, tell them again for the audience members who want to buy and learn more about Rich Nation, Poor Nation, and your other books, how would they, where would you send them? Um, well, you can go to Amazon.com it's, uh, in, in ebook form. I highly would recommend uh, buying or going to the library and trying to get the uh, the actual uh, book form uh-huh. because you can flip through and look at the charts. And I mean, I, I, there isn't a, a week that goes by that I don't open my book and start to look at, well, now what was it like with China when they turned their policies around? How long did it take? And how much of an increase was there? The same with Chile and all the other countries. So I, I, I would highly recommend it. It's rich nation, poor nation. Uh, if you look at the reviews on Amazon.com, I've got some outstanding reviews of people who have enjoyed the book and uh, have learned a great deal from it. And my website is classicalprinciples.com. 
So the three things that we're going to talk about is the impact of China's economy on the global economy and what you see them doing right and wrong, the tariffs and what their impact on a growing economy may be, and the impact and the looming debt, debt and deficit. So I'll have Joan get back in touch with you, and we'll find you the time to have you back on the show, sir. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate it, too. My, my pleasure, sir. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that does it for this episode of Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. I'd like to thank our engineer, Paul Roberts. Our producers are Joan Park, Crystal Nunley, and Haley Stern. Connect with me on social media. Why don't you try Twitter, CEO Peer Groups. On LinkedIn, I'm Richard Franzi, F-R-A-N-Z-I. And our website is criticalmass4forbusiness.com. And until the next show, I hope all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show, focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies. With your host, Richard Franzi. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. Are you ready to tap into the power of social media to promote your business? It's easy to get social with Turn Up the Volume, the award-winning social media marketing professionals who know how to get results. Drive web traffic, boost sales, get social today. Visit www.turnupthevolume.com. That's turnupthevolume.com. Richard Franzi is a highly sought-after keynote speaker on topics of interest to CEOs of middle firms across North America. Richard's talks include Killing Cats Leads to Rats, a fascinating look at how unintended consequences of CEOs' decisions impact their firm's performance. Your Gray Matter Matters, which explores how a CEO's mindset can differentiate a middle market firm and define its culture. Richard delivers talks to a variety of audiences, ranging from executive team retreats to keynotes in front of hundreds of CEOs. To learn more about his talks, visit criticalmassforbusiness.com and select the contact page or call 949-887-4104. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system, or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news, or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880.